Marcia DeSumptis is a journalist, essayist, and author of A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life, and A Hundred Places in France Every Woman Should Go, a New York Times travel bestseller. A contributor writer in travel and leisure, she also writes for Airmail, Vogue, BBC Travel, and many other publications. She has won five Lowell Thomas Awards from the Society of American Travel Writers and is the recipient of the 2021 Golds Award for Travel Story of the Year. Before becoming a writer, she was a television news producer for ABC, NBC, and CBS News for most of those years producing for Barbara Walters. She lives in Connecticut. Marcia DeSantis, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much, Mia and Colette. We've been enjoying a hard place to leave. For me, it was a, a new kind of travel writing, a travel memoir, so many things it touches on like a philosophical, or even may I say, a, a spiritual journey for those who might not consider themselves religious. That's how it touched me. But to give listeners a flavor of your writing, you've chosen a passage. This is chapter 30, so it comes sort of far into the book of 37 essays. It's called Time or the Sahara Wind. There's a photograph from my first visit to Morocco in which I appear as if on the floor of a canyon. Behind me is a cinematic backdrop a towering pomegranate red clay mountainside speckled with clusters of trees. I'm standing on a wide open restaurant terrace wearing white capri pants and a black tank top, sneakers with socks. The wind blows my hair into chaos, but one hand pushes the bangs off my face. In the corner over my shoulder, there's a sliver of Matisse blue sky. I am 24 years old. A few hours from Marrakesh, I arrived at this place, wherever it was, to the staggering side of the mountains opening up beyond the valley. Then I heard my mother's voice. I'm just out of word, she said as her narrow foot swung lightly out of the car into the sunshine. Isn't it something? My mother documented that trip to Morocco as she did everything in her life, perfectly, painstakingly, with the observant eye of a woman who was born an artist, but in a time and place where it would never have occurred to her to actually be one. Me stroking a carpet or chatting with a merchant at the souk. My sandaled foot in the stirrup of each camel I rode. There were, I'm afraid, more than one. I had the cluster of mimosa branches that riffled beyond the hotel window. It was all preserved on film. Back at home, my mother's deft hands slid the photographs onto the pages of albums, which were left untouched for decades, like forgotten or overlooked monuments. The photos seemed to be brushed with a brownish glaze. Maybe it's the passage of time, but perhaps it was the grit from the Chirgui, the wind from the Sahara that blows west across the Atlas Mountains and through Marrakesh, Meknes, Wazazat, carrying fine particles of rust-colored sand. It was ferocious that year in the fall of 1985. The dust hung and thickened the air, but it was also invisible and may have left a film on the lens of my mother's camera, giving the snapshots a tawny cast that dimmed the brights of the morning and churned the milkiness of the clouds. The fine orange coating on my skin made it erupt with tiny hives upon arriving in Marrakesh. Some memories of that trip now seem as that they were filtered through a pleasant Benadryl haze. Even the novel I was reading poolside at the Hotel Mamunia, The Mists of Avalon, bears remnants of this dry desert wind. The paperback stands in my bookshelf, smudged with fingerprints, the color of dried blood on pages stippled from pool water that dripped from my hair and dried in the heat. My mother photographed that too, 
her youngest daughter, asleep in her bikini, stretched out on a chaise under the prickly sun with a book resting on her stomach. I think it encapsulates what I personally enjoyed so much about this book. There is this celebration and air of beauty and sadness. Of course, the book is dedicated to your mother and you're traveling often alone, but then you have the companionship of your mother and the people that are close to you also with you. This whole mingling and sense of coming together, losing time, finding oneself. I just find it beautiful. Thank you. And it's interesting you mentioned that because yes, even though I travel alone, sometimes I travel alone in the writing process when I may not have even traveled alone in the past. I remember it more as a solitary experience. But in this particular story, it was a kind of a journey back alone in search of the ghost of my mother whom I had lost. She hadn't passed away yet, but I had lost her to Alzheimer's, which is basically losing somebody. And I like how these pieces that I guess there were published in the last 10 years, but they spanned 40 years. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And yet they've been published, but how you piece them together, they do seem all of a piece. And it doesn't seem like it's just taken from here. There, There's this flowing narrative. So how did you choose to order them that way? Or how did the shape emerge? It's funny that when I decided to put this book together, I didn't really have the big book published or the big memoir, the big novel, but I I realized that I had this body of work and I had a couple, almost a couple of hundred essays, actually it was about 140, but it's since grown to 160 or 170. I had this body of work and I decided I wanted to make a little, you know, a document to sort of say, I started at 50, I'm about to turn 60. A lot has happened in this decade and it was my second career. And I started looking over the stories that I had done. I would say the majority of the essays were not really about travel. They were more, you know, they were about aging and marriage and memory and all of those things. But I did find that in the travel essays, those kernels of things that I wanted to explore, those bigger kernels of things that I wanted to, that were sort of scratching at me or itching at me from the inside, like a piece of sand in my pocket that was irritating me, something that I wanted to explore. Those tended to happen in the past, but what I found was that the theme of coming and going, the theme of arrivals and departures, the theme of entrances and exits, and the theme of home and away seemed to repeat itself. And I felt that whenever I was somewhere, there was always a tie to home. And when I was home, there was always the urge for going. And so I just weeded out and weeded out and weeded out and really wanted to keep this theme of home and away and at home just thinking of Paris where I used to live or thinking of, you know, the adventure or the journey or the exploration I had recently had. And I did find that there were a lot of gaps, that there were a, a lot of gaps in the narrative. And I, I ended up out of 140 or 150 essays, I ended up with only 26. And I realized that I had to write some more and that there were things that I had to include, such as what it's 
like to be on assignment and to be by yourself and to be traveling, but not on vacation, but to be traveling with a huge, wide open curiosity and with all five senses fired up and engaged entirely, but also, you know, working and working and working, but trying to feel that stillness when I'm away. So I tried to kind of fill in the blanks. And in some of them, I discovered that I wanted to sort of recognize that moment to be like as a fulcrum for the story, that home and away, but then this moment when I'm appreciating them both. It made me feel like had I really traveled and had I really noticed enough, and I think that's very inspiring for people that whether you're traveling alone or with others, are you really appreciating it? And when you're home, are you really appreciating with your eyes open? I think a lot of us sleepwalk our lives. It's true. Maybe it's a coping mechanism. I took away from something that I felt was spiritual, one that was spurring me to appreciate family and home and other cultures. And, and I think that it will help others find their journeys, whatever that may be. And so you spoke about what it's like to be on assignment. And I also wonder what's the difference when you're traveling on assignment, you know where the story's going. You speak like two different kinds of noticing, traveling alone or with others, being on assignment or just having an experience and just flowing into it. It's something I think about all the time because I think there are very many very many ways to travel. And I think when I'm on assignment, I mean, yes, I know what the story is going to be. I know the story the editor has assigned me and I know what I'm there to look for. But, you know, just so I'm not listing a compendium of places, and then we went there and then we did this, and then this guy showed us this, and then this, and then I went to the spa. And that was really great too. You really do have to always find a thread you always have to find something that is bigger than the place that only you can tell. And so what I mean by that is that only you can have a connection with a place. Only you can have your particular experience with a place. No one else, I mean, 20,000 billion people have written about the Eiffel Tower, but everybody experiences it differently? Do you see it as a woman? Do you see it as an icon? Do you see it as a, a target to like, how do you experience this very common thing? And so I would say that the trickiest thing about being on assignment is finding a thread. And sometimes it's your own memory. You know, it, when I was in Northern India, everywhere I was, I was passing by the Ganges River and passing by the Ganges River. And I realized that this story was about water. This story was about connecting with this place as I would a baptism. You know, I'm a Catholic. I don't relate to India in that same spiritual way as a native of the country or as a Hindu would, but I can relate to it as a person that I feel cleansed and refreshed and purified by water. And I I felt a draw always to the water. And meanwhile, yes, I'm interviewing the pastry chef and I'm interviewing the sustainability person who's going to teach me about the native plants in the area and things like that. But it's kind of finding the thread that is going to just weave through your story. It's interesting, though, in this book, there are very few stories that I wrote on assignment. I adapted one. And I think if I had had more time to look at those stories that I've done. And part of being on assignment is 
the commerce ang- angle of, of travel writing in big glossy travel magazines is that we are writing about places we want people to go. And that's very different from going and seeing Angkor Wat in sunrise and watching the sun come up and fainting and just that sort of experience of of being in a place really semi-conscious from insomnia. And so that's very different from the commercial aspect of, I need 2,500 words on Oro Preto, Brazil. You know, it's very often the stories, the essays that emerge from the travel assignment. The essays, it's sort of like the story behind the story, the how I was feeling. Was I exhausted? Was I jet lagged? Was I scratching from mosquito bites? Had I had too much to drink? I mean, there's a lot of things that you can't really put in a story on assignment, but you can put in an essay that you write afterwards. Yes. I think that a few stories are always emerging. I'd like to see your different folders, how that works. I'm aware that you bring in a geopolitical elements and I know that maybe you like to even put more that you can't always put in. That is so true. Yeah, I always want to put more politics. I always want to put more, you know, in a place like Rwanda, where I've been seven times and have reported from many times, some of the smartest people I know say, is it safe? Is it safe? And it's a little bit of a ironic question coming from Americans where our country is not and hasn't been particularly safe, but but sort of the security element of a place like Rwanda, that the country is run by a former head of security of a rebel army, it's very, very, very safe for tourists. And furthermore, the genocide, the horrific genocide is 25 years in the past, and the country is never going to forget the genocide, but is trying to move on and be a country of living people rather than a country of dead people. But every time I put President Kagame's name in a story about Rwanda, the editors are like, "Mm, I don't know, just a few lines about it. Because I do think that when people are reading about travel, they want to know what to see, what you experienced, what the ride was like there. Did you take a plane? Did you take a car? Are the people great? Who else was at the hotel and things like that? That's very different from getting into the nitty gritty of climate issues, geopolitics and stuff like that. Yes. And there's a beautiful line from one of your essays about Kigali. Who did you lose? I wanted to ask everyone I met, how does a country repair the irreparable? Made us also think about whatever country we live in, but also in America, you know, live with ghosts. And this phrase, how do the ghosts outnumber the living? Well, you feel it at a place like that. You feel it always in a post-conflict zone. And it's so much of the world is so beset by war and terror, war and terror. And I'm always really surprised how we do move on, how you can go somewhere. I mean, I was recently at the border of Ukraine and Poland and met a lot of people who were already going back to Ukraine. They had been bombed out of their homes and maybe, you know, sadly can't go back to the Donbass or can't go back to Mariupol, but they're going back like they are repairing, they are rebuilding. I'm always very, very, very surprised at how resilient is the human spirit and our entire populations. And I've seen that firsthand so much in a place like Kigali, where, again, they don't want to talk about dead Rwandans all the time. They want to 
commemorate it. They want to remember the people they lost. But I found that recently talking about the genocide, even with people who lost a lot of people, it's it's quite clinical. And they prefer to talk about the loss and the grief during the month of commemoration in April rather than all year. They're trying to build and be a an African success story and build a tech economy and things like that. And so a place like that, it's very interesting to witness. And what I wrote about in the story is that I went thinking only about death, like, this is so sad. And people are like, you know, we understand, but, uh, but it's okay. We can talk about other things. You don't have to be so concerned about that. And I don't know, as someone who speaks Russian at has written extensively about Russia. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that or add nuance to our perspective. Well, you mean about what's obviously their war of aggression on Ukraine. So I have a degree in Russian studies. I studied Russian literature. And of course, so much of the Russian literature that I read came from the 18th and 19th century. And where the ghost of Peter the Great looms large. So I do think that, you know, I haven't been back to Russia since 2010. I wrote a bunch of stories from that, a couple of which are in this book. But I do find that having the understanding of Russian history and having the understanding of Russian nationalism, sort of the insecurity of Russian identity about we're not European, we're not Asian, and what exactly are we? And somebody like Putin really wants to prove Russian exceptionalism and exert Russian identity on his neighbors. I think many people and more qualified people have said this before me, but really that predates the creation of the Soviet Union, that it really goes back to the Battle of Poltava and getting Sweden out of Kievan Rus and out of what is now the Ukrainian territory. So it all makes perfect sense. I do think that from what I know and from what I read, I feel like the country is probably very divided, like the U.S. is, between the acceptors and the deniers, between the people who think the 2020 election was stolen by Joe Biden and the Democrats and the people who feel like Trump is out of his mind. And I feel like Russia is probably very similar, that there's true believers, probably in the great Russian landmass, and fewer true believers in the big metropolitan centers. The difference being you're less free to express that dissent or that horror or that truth. <laughs> yeah, I'm not well enough informed. We have had some conversations with Jeffrey Sachs and others who has put forward and been bold about whether it's being perceived in Russia as, you know, American NATO or a neocon mission. I think everyone wants to sue for peace. I don't want to detract onto this, but I always am interested in perspectives. I appreciate that. And for someone that spent almost all of my college years and the years following that, really immersed in Russian culture, I learned the language so that I could understand Russian literature and history and by extension politics. I have a great love of the country and it's very brave and historically very oppressed people. And I would love to go back. I'd love to go to St. Petersburg with my family. And I've written so much and have read so much and have studied so much. And no one in my family, neither my kids nor my husband have ever been there. And I'd love to be on the ground with them and you know, show them some amazing things. I'm not sure that we'll be able to get back for another generation or that we'll want to. 
And that's sad. And that's, you know, that's also sad for the tour guides and at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg that don't have any clients and don't have any business and all the hotels. And so there is a different conversation, but in these places, it sort of goes along with COVID too, and in war and natural disaster, that 10% of the world is employed by the tourism sector. And all of these things devastate economies and families. There's a lot of light within the darkness in your stories in Russia, having your room searched. There are funny moments about the stories only you could tell, as you mentioned, Mr. Václav Havel. <laughs> oh, the Václav Havel, sure. I don't mind giving it away. It's, it's only three pages long. And uh, so it isn't like you have to wade through the end and get to the twist. But some of these stories were really just moments, um, people, places, experiences, brief experiences that had haunted me, I guess, or I had thought about for a long time. And to be honest, the story about President Havel was just kind of one of those anecdotes that I was like... Dined out on for many years, like, oh, you can't believe it. I saw, you know, Batsav Havel going to the bathroom at a urinal in Prague. And so it was just a minute and it was a laugh. But I, I actually have a lot of those and I have a lot more of them. And it's interesting because when I started writing, I was actually writing for a long time, but I, I really had my first big byline the year that I turned 50. I was still 49, but it was my 50th year. And I had begun to just write about these. I wasn't traveling a lot. I had two youngish kids at home. I was stuck in the country. You've been to my house. There's not much to do here. And imagine it in the winter when you can't even get out of the driveway. The least kind way to say it is resting on my laurels is just taking these moments and these experiences and making a narrative out of them. I had a lot of them. And part of it was also reclaiming my past. I was a housewife. I was a full-time mother. I was teaching a little bit. I'd written a novel that I got an agent, but it didn't sell. I was kind of pecking away at an existence, honestly. And I was looking back at things that, that were almost in disbelief and in such stark contrast to the life I was living now. And so yes, I'm just this housewife and I'm in line, which is fine. I mean, I was in it fully, but I was also thinking, wow, I once was in the Prague Castle with the most important television journalist of her generation, Barbara Walters, who I worked for. And it was very hard to think that I was that same person. And so I, I started writing these smaller stories. It's hard to lose an identity. I had left New York City. I had moved to the country. I had given up my work. And I was kind of mourning the person I used to be. And so I was just reviving these little moments. And yes, meeting Václav Havel and seeing him at the urinal was one of those moments. And I decided to just do it in an epistolary form in second person and had that one published. Actually, that was the last ad to this book because my edit, it was published in this wonderful literary travel magazine called Off Assignment in their column called Letter to a Stranger. And it was published last, maybe February or March. And the editor said, this has to go in the book. And so I had written it a long time ago, though, and just hadn't gotten around to it. It was a long story about being in Prague. 
And then I said, you know, that would be a great letter to a stranger to write. So that was literally like a last minute add to the book. I really enjoyed just the whole balance. I fell in love with in the book. And you address the second act where you moving to the country, beautiful Hustler country where your husband is a stone sculptor. And if I may ask, there's a quite a personal essay where you really discuss this, this other life you may have considered living. Right. Well, that was actually the essay that started my career, really. It was a story about how I just fell hard for somebody else. I went to graduate school in foreign policy. So that was sort of like, what can I do? This writing thing isn't working out. I'm in the country. I also, because I had a lot of time by myself, I made an extra effort, not just to mine my own archives for stories and moments, but I was reading newspapers. I got very curious. It was almost like a turbocharged effort to not isolate myself, which resulted in going to graduate school in foreign policy and literally connecting myself to the world. While I was there, I met somebody else. In retrospect, like 10, 12 years later, I do feel like it was hormonal and it was also just very much on the cusp of middle age. And middle age is a very scary place. It's like you are literally losing your youth and your beauty. And in my case, my relevance. And so I met this younger person. I mean, he wasn't significantly younger, but he was, I would say, emotionally younger because he was unattached. He was working in a conflict zone. And it was like, this is like all the journalists I used to work with. And it was interesting in many ways, at least to me, I wasn't really unhappily married at all. I was very, I mean, happily married. What does that even mean? We were very compatible, best friends, really love and respect each other, kind of no issues other than the usual ones, just like not doing enough around the house or me bugging him about not doing too much about that, sort of the normal things. But so this was a real inflection point in my life because it was the essay. So I wrote about this and by the time I wrote about it, it was well behind us. It was resolved. And of course, my husband had read it and he's like, oh my gosh, the essay's beautiful. I'm so glad we're over that. So it wasn't like traumatic for him to see this written about. He was supportive of me as a writer. And as were my younger kids, like, mom, you've got to write the truth, which I thought was very selfless and very kind of them. And also one of the hardest thing to do when you're writing personal essay and memoir but so this was very much the point. It was like the dividing time of my life. It was the dividing time between before I was a writer and after I was a writer. But in the context of travel, it was be before this essay and before this story, I hadn't found a way to combine the things that I loved to do or the things that I could do along with the master's degree that I had received. So after that is really when I started traveling and traveling with a purpose and trying to get that geopolitical angle that I had gotten more interested in and gotten, I would say, a little expertise in, in getting this master's degree. So that area, and it was also when I realized that when I traveled and when I left this beautiful, safe, place called home, I was able to really appreciate what I had at home. 
so travel became a way to kind of quell my restlessness, but not quell it in the sense that I wanted it to go away, but quell it in a way that I could channel it into some, literally some professional way that I could leverage it. I mean, it would quell and leverage my restlessness into story. And then always very happy to walk back in the door and sort of be, ah, I'm okay. And the worst way that I could say it was travel was a way to self-medicate, was a way to deal with the major hormonal imbalance that happens, and to me, to an alarming degree in my late 40s, but also a way to take this restlessness and make something of it. I think that anyone reading that can, of a certain age or even before, can understand that restlessness. And I think that we all experience in different moments of our lives, but what that essay and what your wider essays, I think, do is even though they're so personal, I, I don't doubt that there's this objectivity and discretion. There's this fine balance I think must be very hard to do. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. I think objectivity is what we owe ourselves when we're writing personal essays. I think writing an essay is very much like travel. You're deeply, 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 deeply in it, or you want to be. Otherwise, why are you there? But you're also detached from it somehow. So you're so I always think that in travel, we're always really almost injecting ourselves into something, into the unknown. And the more you are immersed in that, the more you are woven into this fabric, the better your story is going to be. But you also have to retain your detachment and your objectivity. So you're both immersed and disengaged, and you're both engaged and detached. And I think in an essay, you really have to do that. And I think you owe it to yourself and your writer to be 100% honest, because I think the reader can tell when you're not being honest. But also, I was objective in that because I was also a little bit embarrassed for myself. I was a little embarrassed that I put this man through it, that I put my husband through it. I was kind of coming straight out with that shame and just saying, but I came out the other side. I came out alive. I came out stronger. And I came out really understanding that this is really what marriage is. And you either decide to stay together or you decide not to stay together. All the romance and heat from the early days of your relationship, you just have to be ready to translate into something else. And that something else involves history and history personal history always involves forgiveness. It's like grace and forgiveness, I think, are what make relationships. And there is no more ultimate relationship than a marriage. The fondness with which Marcia speaks about her travel experiences struck a chord with me. I spent most of my life in four different places, South Carolina, Utah, Washington State, and Shanghai, China. Because of these frequent moves, I began to consider my life to be somewhat nomadic. Ever since I turned 13, I've been unable to provide an adequate answer when people ask me where my hometown is. But as I've grown older, the sense of longing for old homes faded into background noise, and I gained more of a sense of restlessness that Marcia describes. I started to notice the ways in which my collective hometowns had molded me into a more self-aware and independent version of myself. Marcia's words about travel acting as a taxing but also enriching experience ring true. 
The isolation that comes with traveling to an unfamiliar place is inevitable, but there is so much that can be gained from seeing the world and learning about cultures outside of our own that makes it all worth it. Unsurprisingly, the most challenging of my transitions was to Shanghai. I remember the day my family got there and we went to a local grocery store. It took us almost an hour just to get a couple things because we couldn't read any of the labels. Being our first real outing since we'd arrived, there was no frustration from anyone. We got a kick out of the process and the atmosphere of the city was still so novel to us that the excitement was palpable. Though there would still be rough patches and cultural differences that I would have to learn to navigate over time. The lightness and energy that my family had are what I do my best to channel whenever I'm experiencing such a big change. The obstacles can be ever present, but they create a resilience that will stick with you and a burning desire to broaden your horizons. As Marcia quotes at the beginning of her novel, A Hard Place to Leave, French author Colette captures the intensity of travel as follows. Some part of me is always left hanging on the places I travel through. New countries, clear or cloudy skies, oceans and the pearly gray rain, it's left clinging so passionately that I feel as if I'm leaving behind me a thousand little ghosts that look like me, rolling on the waves, rocking on the leaves, scattering in the clouds. And now back to the interview. So in your book, you briefly addressed how COVID has caused a lot of issues with the environment and, you know, in a more basic sense, making travel really difficult and people's general well-being. So how exactly, if at all, did that shape your work experience and your writing? How COVID has affected travel and writing. Uh, it's affected both. It was the reason that I decided to do this book because on a very basic level, I had finished another book, but got very obsessive about COVID, just about how it was changing the world. And my two grown kids were home and I was very depressed, I guess. And I didn't feel like I could go back in and break this memoir wide open. And I just thought I'd been wanting to take stock of a body of work. And I wanted something that wasn't going to demand like going in and just breaking this narrative wide open. And it, it seemed more like busy work. I was going to take all these stories and put them in a row and that's what I would do when I wasn't disinfecting my doorknob and my mail and things like that. But of course, it ended up being not busy work. I ended up writing a bunch more essays and I ended up reconfiguring a lot of essays that were there. My first trip was a story in Big Bend National Park, which is one of the most isolated and isolating places in the universe, at least in the lower 48 in our country. It is just very, it's Southwest Texas and very, very stark and very, very empty. So I was really trading one kind of solitude, the solitude that had been forced on us as a society to the solitude of choice, which is isolation of choice, which is going to a very remote place. And it was interesting that the solitude of COVID just translated into pure loneliness. And yet when I chose it for the other kind of solitude, I wasn't lonely. I felt like liberated and free, but I was very nervous about traveling. I was wondering if it was morally the right thing to do. Should I even get on an airplane? And then I got there and people were happy to have visitors. Restaurants were happy that they weren't closed again. They closed for a certain amount of time. It was federal law. National parks had to close. I think it was two or three months. And that's a lot of lost revenue. That's a lot of lives affected. 
And so I really was very torn between was this the right thing to do or was this not the right thing to do? And I think I've had that experience subsequently. COVID has changed travel. I disagree with the dropping of the mass mandates on planes. It's just, should it be everybody's choice? I mean, yes, unless the person sitting next to you is coughing and not wearing a mask. I don't really understand it. It's like, what's the big deal? You're wearing a mask. I went to the Seychelles six months ago on assignment for travel and leisure and very, very strict protocols, PCR testing that you have to get within 72 hours, send to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the Ministry of Tourism within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They then have to invite you. And a couple of weird things happened. It was very interesting. So traveling to some countries that got very, very severely hit, of course, there were a lot of environmental positives with not having a lot of tourists, not having a lot of boat traffic, not having people with sunscreen, scuba diving, things like that. But a place like that, probably 35% of their GDP comes from tourism. I mean, it's incredibly sad. These people got decimated. They had two years with no income. So in a way, we justify it like that, but it is part of the economy of the world is travel. And a place like the Seychelles, that's literally the middle of nowhere the middle of the Indian Ocean, a place like that gets very hit by COVID. So sort of the ambivalence of, do you travel? Do you not travel? Is it moral? Is it even safe? I think you just have to be really honest and really strict with yourself and test yourself and bring testing kits. And, you know, I might overdo it in that regard, but it, it is a disease of privilege. It's a disease of people traveling all over the world and spanning the globe on airplanes. So You don't want to add to that, but as a travel writer, you also want these industries to thrive in places where they need to be thriving. Yes. And it's a difficult question now looking at back to, you mentioned the environment, the last IPCC report, and that's another thing that we weigh in our mind as well. I guess we're supposed to hit peak carbon emissions by 2025 and then just go sharply down. I don't know how we're going to hit that and how the travel industry is coming terms to redefining their means of transport. I think it's a very, very difficult question. And it's one we grapple with. It's one everybody grapples with because yes, you want the economy of a place like the Seychelles to survive. You want people to see these beautiful places and these hardworking people and all the things they're doing to rescue turtles and rescue various other birds and fish and wildlife, but it takes a lot of airplane to get there. I think we're all grappling with these issues until the great minds of the world can find another way to fly an airplane on something besides fossil fuels. I think we're all going to be all a little bit guilty in carbon emissions. I mean, we have electric cars and not everyone can afford them and airplanes will one day follow suit somehow and probably somewhere some great, brilliant people are working on that. I just have to give a shout out to Bertrand Picard, who we're lucky to interview this week. So I'm going to be picking his brains about that. And since he was able to fly around the world on a solar impulse flight, I think he has a lot of solutions. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you're interviewing him. Well, I'll definitely share with you what we're finding because he has very climate positive solutions. It's pushing forward in France. And I think then after France, around the world, He's such a positive figure. So we can still visit the Seychelles 
under this very positive and very tangible. It's not greenwashing. I look forward to that for sure. So having written a hundred places in France, every woman should go. What is your favorite city in France? And what is the draw there for you? Why is the country as a whole special to you in particular? I would say that my connection with France is just very old, is very primal. And I just think that it was something that I was interested in from a very young age and studied the language and was pretty good at languages. Honestly, I could speak French really well. I got the French prize in junior high school and the French prize in high school and didn't study French in college because, you know, I'd kind of tested out of French. So I studied Russian instead. I had already started Russian in high school, but I love France for all the reasons we all do. I think geographically it has so much. It has sharp, rugged coasts. It has white, sandy beaches. It has mountains. It has plains. It has architecture and history and a great tradition of writing and a great tradition of women and just amazing women that really made their mark on civilization even. And so I would go there as much as I could. I'd always try to find a way to get there. And I worked for ABC News or like I'd be in Moscow and they'd say, oh, you can stop in Paris for a few days, which is always really nice because we used to stay in really nice hotels. And then I moved there in 1989. My husband-to-be moved there with me. We were married there. And I would say that just connection runs, runs very deep. My favorite place in France, it's an interesting question because... I had, when I was on book tour for that book, for 100 Places in France, and as you know, the book is not, it's not really a guidebook. It's meditations on 100 places. But so many people ask me, what is your favorite place? And I'd always say, oh, I don't know. It's got to be somewhere, maybe Brittany. And then I thought, you know what? My favorite place in France is a place I didn't even write about in this book. And so I, I did kind of in a peripheral way, but I ended up writing an essay about this city because I went back there and I thought like, wow, and it's the city of Cassis and it, you know, has nothing to do with Cassis the liqueur, but they're spelled the same way. And I love that city because it is so geologically wild. It has Kapka and I, which are these just major, major, major orange cliffs. It's right down the highway or right down the auto route from Marseille. So it has all the calanques, the little fjords, the little white. There's like fingers of water, just bright turquoise water, just enveloped in these bright white cliffs. And it has beautiful market. It has just a beautiful history. Simone de Beauvoir spent a lot of time there. I think I wrote about Cassie when she was hiking in there, actually. But she used to hike by herself and she was teaching in the area. And it just has a beautifully perfect kind of ratio between life and beauty. So it's kind of like the perfect little town. Yeah. I love it too. And I, of course, love the painter's depictions. 
It's funny how you get to know often a place through the writing or through the painting or the sculpture before you visit, and they are like interpreters for our experiences. You've written, as you say, extensively about France and a little bit also about your grandfather from Italy, but not as much. So I was curious to see it, but you talk about the gardening. It's a very good question, actually. And one reader of my book, A Hard Place to Leave, said, I love Italy. That's where my friends and my family always want to go. And you didn't write anything about Italy. And I said, it's interesting. I've spent a lot of time in Italy. Yes, I have Italian roots. But that story, that narrative, that conflict, I mean, every time I'm in Italy, I'm thinking, this place is the best. Everything is so perfect. And the food and the light and the wine and the old buildings and the walks and the architecture and the pasta and everything is so perfect that I tend to be with my family when I'm there. And I don't necessarily find those points of conflict or tension that you need to write a story about. I think also because of my France book and because I spent so much time there researching the France book, just a lot of things came up. I mean, there was weather. For one, there was just this weird solitude in this incredibly romantic country. So a lot of these points of conflict and tension came up that just haven't really come up in Italy because Italy is just like, oh, I had the best time. This place is perfect. And that's good for a travel story, but not necessarily for an essay that's about the human spirit. But yeah, I love Italy. I can't wait. to. My daughter's going to grad school in Italy. So I feel like I'll have some trips there and maybe some kind of new exploration. Yes. Or even, I don't know, maybe it becomes speculative as you think about your family not knowing the whole stories. I mean, I don't know how much you have to piece together. So you have to really discretion or you have to really get it down and you have to guess. I'm not sure. Well, I think when you have strong roots somewhere, when you go to that place, you feel them deeply. And my grandparents are from a small town in Abruzzo. It's actually very close to Rome. And we have a Roman, my last name is De Sanctis, which means of the holy ones. And we're very, my grandparents came over, my grandfather came over when he was barely 16, went back and collected my grandmother. And he was like a lot of people, a lot of immigrants to the USA, to America from that generation. He never wanted to go back. Italy was associated with poverty and with kind of toiling in the fields. He went, he did go collect my grandmother, but he gave up his Italian citizenship as soon as he could. My grandmother had a much closer tie with the place. She missed her sister. My grandfather just bolted. He just left. And so my father was really not raised as an Italian at all. My father doesn't speak a word of Italian. Furthermore, he was raised in Tucson where there wasn't a big Italian population at all. My father's name is Roman. And I think through his entire youth, people thought his name is Ramon, which would be a Latin, like a Hispanic name rather than Roman, which has to do with the city of Rome. But yeah, it is speculative. You do always wonder about the people who came before you there is one relative of mine that I'm interested in because apparently I resemble her very much. And she died in a major earthquake in, I think it was 1909 or 1911 in Aquila. And my grandfather used to look at me and be kind of haunted 
by her face, which is interesting because I don't really look Italian, I don't think, but I guess it's my bone structure gestures or those things that make you resemble someone. So yeah, maybe that's a, a journey that I'll have to make. So you've talked a little about feeling like there's a bit of a contrast between being in all of these really beautiful places, but also feeling a sense of solitude, especially if you're traveling alone. So I'm curious, do you feel like there's something kind of powerful about traveling alone? Could you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, I think traveling alone is in a way the only way to travel when you are investigating. It's just traveling with someone is an entirely different experience. You're taking a walk and you're talking to that person. You're talking to that person probably about things at home. Your mind isn't expanding in the same way. Your mind also might not even be open in the same way. I mean, sure, you can be two people or six people on a boat and engage with strangers and learn a lot about their country or their life or them, but it, it is very different. I just think as far as curiosity investigation, it's much more rewarding and much more possible when you're alone. Do I sometimes feel like I want to be sharing this with someone? Yes. And I would say more so recently than at the beginning, you know, when I started traveling alone, it was what I had to do. It was my purpose. It was, I am going and I'm going to find stuff out. And a lot of the stuff I'm going to find out is going to be about me. And I feel like if I had been traveling with someone, I would have been rooted in, and grounded in what I was supposed to be leaving behind. But yeah, it is much more conducive to the realm of curiosity. Yes. And of course, sometimes you're traveling alone, but you are sometimes relying on guides, I imagine, in some regions or sometimes with photographers. But it's this newness that you don't have all this history. So how do you collaborate with them? I would say when you're alone, especially when I'm out investigating, I have to talk to so many people. And obviously, when you're reporting a deep feature, you can never get enough information. You can never get enough interviews. And I overdo it a little bit. And I frustrate myself when I get home because I have too much material and too many people. And all of them said the best things. but. I do depend on everyone from the guide to the translator to the person who's arranging things in the hotel. But again, when I'm alone, it happens in a much more open way. I think one thing that happens, which isn't a negative, but it can be hard sometimes is if I go for kind of a glossy magazine and you're alone, people fuss over you a little bit, and especially a woman traveling alone, is there, and it, almost like they feel a little bit sorry for you, like, oh, you poor Miss Lonely Hearts, you know, drinking at the bar by yourself, your glass of wine at the end of the day. So I always try to send a signal that I don't need to be fussed over, that I'm working, that I'm good, that I've chosen to be alone, that I have a life, that I'm not just this kind of sad person. I mean, I don't know if that sounds judgmental or anything. I just don't want to be fussed over. I have had people feel sorry for me, like, really? Table for one? Really? Are you sure? Are you waiting for Okay. And I'm like, no, really, I'm okay. I think that society still does have a little bit of an issue with women alone. I think they're just like, you have to be accompanied. And I've been really fighting that my whole life. I do collaborate with photographers when I'm lucky, because some of the professionals that I've worked with are so talented and really helped me see things that I wouldn't necessarily see and will sometimes stick around 
longer for something. I tend to be on the go. Again, have to really work to find that stillness. But I tend to say like, oh, I got to get to the next thing. I got to get to the next thing. Or I have to go and transcribe my notes or something. But a photographer is just waiting for that shot. And sometimes it really helps me to say, okay, I'm going to be sticking around longer to see what happens with these clouds, even though I'm kind of done with the clouds. But inevitably, it's worth it. Traveling alone doesn't mean traveling in a complete vacuum or bubble. You do get lost. You need to depend on strangers and you do need to collaborate sometimes. Yes. And I can imagine that having the photographer or a guide or someone to take care of some of those things, you can have your storytelling emotional experience and know that they're taking care of that so that it's not all in your shoulders and you could be maintaining the eye contact. And I think when you're taking the photographs, there's this apparatus between you. Well, that's true, but it's also a photographer is for the most part relying on just one of our five senses. I still think there are six senses because I feel like there's touch, but there's also the emotions that you're feeling at the time that only you can experience. Or again, the other context of your life, like who you are that day. What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Are you tired? Are you frustrated? Are you jet lagged? Are you angry? Are you preoccupied? Are you itchy? <laughs> are you hungover? But but a photographer usually quite wonderfully takes care of the visual aspect, as does your iPhone. But all the other things, how the air smelled and what was buzzing through the air and how loudly it was buzzing and if the buzzing came and went and you know the drop of juice on your tongue, only you can identify those. And that's why note-taking is still very important and why we all rely, including myself, I do rely on our cameras to tell a lot of the story or even to just jog your memory. But it's all the notes. It's funny, I always talk about all the flowers and the little things that I keep. And I was making my bed this morning and the book that I was reading three weeks ago and actually had to put aside because I've had to read so many books because I've been doing like book talk events with other authors and this flower fluttered out and I thought, oh, I'm so glad I collected that. And it was a walk in Temescal Canyon in Malibu. It's called the Western Dandelion, but they're these very beautiful flowers. And sometimes it's like, I would have written that story and maybe not remembered that particular flower. I would have remembered other flowers, especially the really obvious ones that are there, like the Sotal plants. And so I do think that little mementos where it's environmentally prudent to take them, you know, you don't want to take rocks or sand or things like that. But I think certainly napkins and receipts and ticket stubs and all those things really help you too. And we love the end of your collection. You do, as you say, you bring it back home. You bring it back to, say, Waterbury, Connecticut. You bring it back home to a sense of even political engagement. What can you do from what you've learned about the outside world to try to make home a better place? Tell us a little bit more about that, moving in a political direction or just making sure that you contribute to your community and greater society. So, yeah, I ended up writing a story about a very, at least on the surface, unglamorous place. And I think it is important to remember that you don't have to get on an airplane and travel 16 hours to Johannesburg and to have a valid travel experience or even get on a plane and fly to Paris. There are beautiful mysteries to 
delve into and uncover closer to home. But but yes, last January, we were all just so desperate for the vaccine. And I found a way to volunteer at a vaccine clinic and it was at a nearby hospital. And it was quite difficult actually, because it was so hard to find a vaccine that I couldn't even figure out where they were giving vaccines. I think it happened maybe in a similar way in France, but I had contacted a hospital and I said, I'm just really sick of being at home. And I wondered if I could volunteer at your hospital, like an old fashioned, we call them in the States, candy striper, somebody who brought the cart of comfort care around to patients of nail clippers and lemon drops and things like that. But she wrote me back and she said, well, actually, we're starting our vaccine clinic next week. Would that interest you? I was like, yes, I wanted to. And it was more selfishly something that I needed to do for myself. I mean, I wasn't thinking, how can I go help people? I was selfishly and very honestly saying, I need to do something to feel better about myself and about the world we live in. So I ended up writing an essay about Waterbury, which has a lot of history and beauty and tragedy and current day poverty. But I discovered that by engaging, by working every day at this vaccine clinic, which as you can imagine in May and April of last year was just, it was impossible to get an appointment. You could not get one. And we booked and booked and booked. And even for the people who did manage to get appointments, you know, the lines were out the door. It was absolute chaos, but it was kind of joyous chaos. And then the last essay of the book was, again, finding a way to engage with the world outside. And that means outside of my home and this safe place that I'm lucky enough to be able to come back to, finding a way. And it was just, again, kind of an accident. I had given a very small amount of money to a candidate in North Dakota, who was a senator that was somewhat high profile, whom I admired. It was a woman. And I gave my 25 or $50, my little pittance. And I got an email back saying, would you like to come to Bismarck and volunteer? And I just thought, yes, <laughs> sure. And it was just really weird. And the next thing you know, my husband's like, wait, what? That's great. But what, what are you going to be doing? I'm going to be knocking on doors in North Dakota. And so that was an entry point. I didn't have, like Waterbury, I didn't have a travel assignment, but I knew that when I got there, that there was a story to be found. And that essay about Bismarck is the last essay in the book and is very much, you know, I think in a way I just catapulted into the world and kind of deliberately catapult myself home and it has really become my way of life by the end of the book. But again, there's ways to do it where you can justify it. Like I knew that I'd be able to pay for the trip to Bismarck somehow. I, of course, have maxed out credit cards and acted irresponsibly in pursuit of this second career. But fortunately, I have usually found a way to make the endeavor pay for itself. And so, yeah, I was very, very happy to volunteer. It was super interesting. I'd never been to North Dakota never really been knocking on doors in a place that was not necessarily friendly to the candidate that I was backing. And people were like, I don't understand you came from Connecticut. And I said, well, Connecticut is kind of all set this year. It doesn't really need my help. Anyway, volunteering 
was a point of entry and volunteering domestically. Again, you don't have to go and volunteer at an orphanage, which is great, but we tend to think as volunteering is something we do in the global South or places that are very far, far flung and really besieged with poverty and disease. But you can also volunteer at a place, a nearby urban center, or even a domestic politician. It's a beautiful message and the example of your life. And so finally, as you think about the future and the environment, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, and reflect upon the importance of travel and the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? It's interesting. Some days I do feel optimistic. It's something that I really battle against. You know, I don't want this to sound too much like a therapy session, but I do feel that my generation, sort of the baby boomer generation, has not really acted responsibly, has left kind of a mess for my children's generation and subsequent generations. And I feel really bad about it. And sometimes I feel bad to the point of despondency. I think we all know that despondency doesn't get you anywhere. And I look upon a, a generation of engaged activists, people my kids' age, that whole generation really, really, really cares. And part of it is anger. And some of the conversations are heartbreaking, like, thanks, you did this. Why didn't you ever think that Roe versus Wade, our abortion law, like, why didn't you ever think that this was going to be under attack? How did you let this happen? And there is a lot of responsibility, but I do feel that the optimism, the commitment, the openness and the level of care and concern of the younger generation is going to save us. I've already learned a lot from, let's say, my daughter and her friends, the questions they ask and the concerns they have. And so I will you know, continue to be open to learning from the younger generation. And I think the second that you give up hope is the second that you have declared failure. And I think nobody wants to declare failure. People want to still have children and want to still go to beautiful places and want those places to be safe and clean. We have to first look it in the eye. You're right. We look it in the eye. You know, interestingly, and in I'll bring up the Seychelles again, a lot of my story there was about the environmental impact that the developed countries have on a place like that, that is in the middle of the ocean, that could disappear through rising seas. And it is really important that they have a voice and their voice is being heard. I mean, little Seychelles, population 100,000, was depending on the industrialized countries to do their part. But sort of like my generation to the younger generation, industrialized countries are becoming aware of what they have done to these exploited countries or coastal countries or island nations and things like that. And so because they are aware of what they have done and the risks that all of our fossil fuels and a million other things have done to some of these more poor nations, they are giving these smaller places a kind of a seat at the table and letting their voices be louder and more hurt. And at some points, even ceding the floor to them, which I think is a really positive thing. You're right. Look it in the eye and everybody do something. Everybody do a small part. Be aware of it every day. 
And you give a great example in your life that we don't have to follow just one path. We can veer, we can be many things in countries and cities. And I see a lot of positivity. So it's very inspiring getting to know you even more through your writing and your community work as well. Thank you, Marcia De Sanctis, for your writing that brings us closer to the world, helps us understand more about ourselves, our families, communities, and for sharing your sense of wonder and compassion for cultures and society. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for all you do as well. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Colette Gavier with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Colette Gavier. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.